you have your Bibles, join us in the book of Matthew, chapter number 8 this morning. Matthew, chapter number 8. Your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, whatever you have, whatever you use, um, go ahead and join us there. Matthew, chapter number 8. And uh, we, last week, thank you, Roy, we introduced the beginning of this chapter. Um, really, we stepped out of, a couple of weeks ago, the Sermon on the Mount, which is a longer discourse, in fact, the longest discourse that we have recorded of Jesus. And then um, we stepped into, last week, the first of this narrative, more narrative chapter, uh, more of a storytelling um, book, uh, portion of the book, I should say. And so today we're going to continue that in Matthew chapter number eight, and we're going to see a couple of instances that Jesus interacts with some individuals, and we're going to see um, what takes place and really how he responds in some unlikely ways. Um, now, as we come into um, 2022, um, first of all, happy new year, right? As we step into um, this year, how many of you, uh, you still, you make New Year's resolutions? How many of you make New Year's resolutions? All right, two of us, three, okay, all right, like, handful, all right, we got a lot of people that are of the mindset, never try, never fail, and uh, maybe that's our, maybe that's our motto <laughs> um, for some individuals, right? Um, the beginning of the year oftentimes tends to prompt us to think about um, new futures, new possibilities, um, and in fact, it causes us often towards the end of one year, the beginning of the next, to reflect on one and then to hope for um, what could be in the next and um, we often have great intentions as we begin the new year. On, uh, I, I saw a few friends posting pictures um, on January, I'm sorry, December 31st, um, going to the gym saying they were going to get one last time in before the rush. Because we know January 1st, all of a sudden, everybody is packing in because their New Year's resolutions have kicked in. And this is going to be the year that they keep to it. Even though the last five years were going to be the year as well, this is really going to be the year. And we often do these with the best of intentions. We make these plans and then one thing or another happens, some difficulty confronts us along our path. And so we decide to um, make some concessions and then visit some concessions. And then we <laughs> it goes downhill from there, right? Um, and so oftentimes, that's what we find to be true with human nature. Um, I hope that you don't um, quit thinking about what could be and striving for the next thing. Because if we're uh, honest, we've all failed at achieving goals, right? How many of you have ever um, failed to achieve a goal, right? We all have. Um, that doesn't mean we stop setting goals. That means we continue to try to improve. We may, maybe set better goals. Maybe we try harder. Maybe we whatever it is for your individual situation. But we don't just give up on those things. And as we step into um, this new year, I want to look at a couple of these verses here. Uh, really, what we're seeing is we're seeing Jesus as he's speaking to a couple of followers, and they're kind of learning the difference between um, what we could say in our vernacular today, uh, walking the walk and talking the talk. Um, how many of you, you've ever known someone, or you've ever been guilty of being that individual um, who has talked the talk? And then uh, when it's time to walk the walk, maybe um, anybody ever uh, let their mouth write a check that their feet couldn't cash or whatever, right? Uh, we've been there with good intentions. And so what we find here in this passage, we find a couple of men that are very relatable, if we're being honest with ourselves, very relatable. And we're going to see how Jesus addresses some of these things that they are wrestling with in Matthew chapter number eight. So let's begin reading in verse number 18 
And I want to look at verses 18 and 19 to begin our study today. We're only going to go through verse 22. So not a lot of um, verses, not a lot of uh, passages of Scripture. We're not doing a deep study through last week. We covered um, 17 verses. Um, But there's a lot packed into these few verses that I think are worth really pressing into carefully. So let's see what takes place in verse number 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, and so this is immediately following, um, or at least contextually following what had taken place as Jesus was healing and Jesus was doing these miracles. Um, and so you see a guy healing people, you see a guy doing miracles, um, you're going to be kind of curious and you're going to be checking out what's taking place. Well, that's what's happening here, stepping into verse number 18. So a great crowd begins to follow Jesus. And he gave orders to go over to the other side, this being the other side of uh, the sea, the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. Um, and a scribe came to him and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds like a great resolution, doesn't it? That sounds like a great promise to make. Um, And what we're going to find is actually, as we look at this, I want to begin to break down some of the things that we just skimmed over very quickly. Uh, Watch who this man is at the beginning of verse number 19. The Bible says, and a, what's that word? Scribe. Um, A scribe was one who it was his role, his responsibility to copy the word of God. And so this man would have been very educated. He would know his letters well. He would know doctrine well. He would know the scriptures very well. This was a man that in the society would have had a certain degree of respect, a certain degree of honor and prestige. So a scribe was someone who was not just another person thinking to follow Jesus. And so as this man comes to Jesus, he comes in such a way, he says, Jesus, what does he say? He says, I will follow you wherever you go. But today I want to talk about the cost of following. The cost of following. This man says something that um, it's likely that many of us in here have made a similar statement when it comes to our faith. I will follow you wherever you go. And today I want to take a moment and I want to ask us all to reflect on that. Maybe that's something that you have never done. I want you to reflect on that to consider doing it. But as we're going to see, what is Jesus' response? Is Jesus' response, yes, that's so exciting. Or what does Jesus say next? We're going to get there in just a moment. But what we find is that in this passage, um, it's very easy to make promises, and sometimes it can be very difficult to keep them. When it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ, we, and I believe very appropriately so, preach and teach that it costs nothing of us to be saved. It costs nothing of us to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith, Paul would write to the Ephesians. And even that, he says, is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so any of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who claim to be born again, we are not born again of seed that we can manufacture. We are born again of incorruptible seed. Um, Someone may have planted, someone else may have watered within our lives, but God is the one who gave the increase. And so it's important for us to understand that our salvation costs us nothing. And so to some degree, following Jesus costs nothing. But yet, following Jesus costs everything. 
And so this is a great dichotomy. I mean, we could call it a dichotomy of discipleship. A disciple is just a biblical word that means follower. And so while following Jesus, it costs nothing. There is no cost on our part for our salvation. That cost was paid by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. Being a true follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ is a costly thing. And we see this man, this scribe, one who had a good career, one who was well-respected, one who was well-liked among his peers. We see him go to Jesus and said, hey, I would follow you anywhere that you would go. Watch how Jesus responds to this. Because Jesus' response is not, all right, pack up your things, let's go. Watch what he says. Jesus said to him, verse 20, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Think about that statement here. Jesus, I love how Jesus speaks. Um, he speaks so, uh, so profoundly, so deeply as he answers. He speaks in these metaphors and these parables. Um, and Jesus, if anyone ever paints Jesus out to be anything, um, you know, spineless or weak or anything like that, just any, open anywhere to what he's saying. And he makes these really difficult statements. Because this man comes and says, Jesus, I want to follow you anywhere you would go. And he says, hey, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man, nowhere to lay his head. Excuse me? <laughs> What? <laughs> What's the statement that he's making here? So he goes back, he draws this analogy to nature, right? Um, even the fox, right? The fox, the elusive loner. When, when we see foxes, we generally see a fox at a time, right? You don't see, uh, they don't travel in packs and in herds, right? Uh, so we see a fox, but even that fox that's a loner has a place to go home, right? A place to sleep. Uh, even the birds, we use the birds often. These are things that are uh, the sparrows, robins. These are cheap. These are commonplace. But even they have a nest to go and to rest. Uh, they even have those things that are, that are theirs, if you will. But then he says there's something different about the Son of Man. The Son of Man, he says, has no place to lay his head. And what is he speaking of, even as he speaks of the Son of Man? Well, this is the first time here in the book of Matthew that we see this uh, statement being used, applying to Jesus. But this is actually the most common way that Jesus refers to himself. He says, the Son of Man. And so here, as he's speaking of the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself. He's saying, I don't have anywhere that I am going that I know where my home is. Did he have, does that mean he, Jesus never slept? No, it just means that he didn't sleep in the same place every night. He didn't have a place that he ran home to and lived and well. And so what's the uh, significance of this? There are a couple things. First of all, I, I want to look here into this phrase, son of man. As we speak of the son of man, there are two, there are two things um, that I believe this refers to. First of all, this refers to Jesus here, his own humanity. As Jesus came and as he lived among men and dwelt among men, he was himself man. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He was entirely human, and yet he was entirely divine, entirely God. This is something that actually is played up here in this phrase, with this phrase, the son of man. You see, this phrase, son of man, um, is, used some, is used in the Old Testament a few different times. 
Sometimes it refers to an angel. Sometimes it refers to um, other uh, instances, other appearances and the likeness of a man. Um, but here specifically, uh, many Bible scholars believe that this is referring back to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, and specifically um, chapter number 7. And here in Daniel chapter number 7, um, we find some really interesting uh, verses taking place. If you want to go there for just a minute, we're going to take a quick detour. Because I believe this is something that um, as we go through and as we speak often of the Son of Man... I think it's worthwhile to know what this is referring to, where this is taking place, what is going on here. Daniel chapter number 7, and beginning in verse number 9, Daniel is having this vision. And Daniel is seeing things, there are things that are revealed to him. Um, and as he begins to speak, he begins to see these things. Uh, there's a passage here that he begins to prophesy of things that are to come, begins to speak of things to come. And verse 9, he says, as I looked, thrones were placed... And the ancient of days took his seat. So this here being a reference to God himself. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousand thousands th served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And so what we see is we see this um, big, uh, we see this group that is gathered in judgment. We see this court that has been called. And look at verse number uh, 13. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. And so this one has the appearance of a man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him... This one presented to the Ancient of Days was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Does that description remind you of anyone? Because here Daniel, as we understand today, speaking of none other than Jesus Christ the one whose kingdom would never end, the one who came in all authority and dominion and power was given unto him. And here Daniel uses this phrase. He says he is like unto a son of man. And the, as we see Jesus making these claims, this is why this claim is so divisive. When you read through the New Testament, when you read through especially the Gospels, there are some who would say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that's absolutely false. Over and over and over again, Jesus claimed to be the son of man. And those who heard it interpreted it as, what do they say? Blasphemy. He makes himself like God. Well, why? Because son of man is speaking to the fact that he is a man, but it's also speaking to the fact that he is the son of man that was come to fulfill the scriptures that had been given. And so here, even as he replies and he speaks of the son of man. Now, you and I, we might say, well, that's kind of, that seems like maybe an obscure passage uh, to go back to. Uh, most of us have probably not spent a lot of time studying through Daniel chapter 9. If we know Daniel for anything, we know him for the lion's den, right? Um, that's chapter 6, all right? We don't go much past chapter 6. It gets kind of confusing and a little fuzzy and some weird pictures and stories take place. Uh, but there's very significant things that happen here towards the end of Daniel's uh, book. And so what we see is we see here that Jesus, as he's speaking to the scribe, 
He's saying, what does he say? Let's go back to the book of Matthew. He says this. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so even in the middle of all of this, he makes a divine claim. And he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This scribe, uh, this scribe, as he's coming to Jesus, I think it's likely that this man was coming to Jesus with the idea that he could offer something to him. Coming to Jesus as we know that he's a scribe, right? We don't just read he's a man. We read specifically that he's a scribe. And so as he's looking around, who are the primary followers of Jesus at this point? I mean, you have fishermen. Matthew himself was a tax collector. And so I think this scribe's looking around and saying, you know what? Jesus could really use a few more qualified followers. And as he looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you would like to go. I'll follow you and I'll be with you. Jesus looks and he says, hey, I don't know who you think you are, but, well, he probably did. Um, but foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man nowhere to lay his head. What's he saying? There's nothing glorious about following after me. There's nothing glorious about following after Christ. He comes and he gives this big praise and this big promise. He he says, oh, I would leave everything. And he makes it seem like this, oh, all the glitz and the glamour and the sheen and all. Oh, wow, look, Jesus, I'll do all of these things. And he says, hey, listen, I don't think you understand. Following after me doesn't involve that stuff. Following after me looks a lot like everyday faith, everyday fellowship. It means sometimes you don't know where you're going to stay the night. It means sometimes you're not quite sure where you're going to get your next meal. It means leaving behind a lot of the things that you seem to really like and that seem to really appeal to your desires. But that's not following after Christ. And you see what he's really trying to communicate is this. If Jesus wasn't promised comfort, why would his followers be? If Jesus wasn't promised comfort, why would his followers be? You see, so often, we love comfort, don't we? Um, We like coming inside to this time of year, I would say an air-conditioned building, but this time of year, we're like a heated building, right? So we like heat when it's cold and air conditioning when it's warm. There's nothing wrong with that. I I appreciate those things myself. Um, We appreciate having the ability to do a lot of the things that we do. But here, we're looking at a life that Jesus lived, and comfort is nowhere on the radar. Comfort was never something that was guaranteed. He didn't say, come follow me, and you'll have uh, a chicken in every pot or whatever. You know? He's not saying, I'm going to make these promises, and then follow after me because of them. No, 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 no. He says, you're following after someone that doesn't even know where he's going to sleep tonight. You're following after someone who... Who, who never stays in the same place twice. You're following someone who uh, comforts and attachment. And these things, they just don't exist in the way that you have imagined them. And so the scribe, we don't read any more about the scribe. We don't see he went away sad. We don't see um, later that he came and followed. We don't, we don't know anything else. That's the end of the conversation that Matthew has recorded. 
But so many of us, we would love to get up and say the words, I would follow Christ anywhere. I would do anything. But here we find that Jesus is not praising this man for his intellectual ability. He's not praising this man for all of the training that he had gone through. He's not praising this man for all of the things that he knew and all of the wisdom that he brought. Um, But instead, he's beginning to help us understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And as he's speaking of this discipleship in this little phrase, what he's conveying to us is that a disciple is not called to comfort, but a disciple is still called to be faithful. Even in the middle of these things, he says, you want to follow after me? You have to be prepared for this. Because he knew those that were not prepared to be faithful, that the moment that they entered into these obstacles, this one may say, I'll follow you everywhere. And he said, okay, come on, let's go. And then the man says, where are we going? And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not sure yet. Or you know what? I'm not going to tell you yet. Wait a second. What do you mean you're not going to tell me? Hey, where are we sleeping tonight? Where do we live? Oh, we don't live anywhere. We just find a place. Excuse me? What? And so even before an invitation to follow, there's faithfulness that's required of one that would follow after. You see, it's often easier to say things like this man would and say, I'll follow you anywhere. Or maybe say, I'll die for Christ than to actually go out and finish a life saying, I've lived for him. You see, often uh, living for Christ is more difficult than dying for him. Because living means every day I get up and I surrender the things that I desire. And then every day I have to get up and I have to do it again. And then I have to get up and I have to do it again. Then I have to get up and do it again. It's not doing a hard thing one time. It's doing a hard thing day after day after day after day. Which is why the, uh, the life of a disciple... It's not appealing to many of us. Uh, It's not attractive to many. Because it's not one that all of a sudden we make a decision and then here we are and uh, we're elevated and lifted up. No, it's, it's a decision daily to place the needs of others before yourself. It's a decision daily to say, I'll follow after Jesus Christ regardless of what it asks of me. It's a decision daily to spend and be spent for the cause of Jesus. And watch what takes place next, because he goes into another uh, difficult yet necessary saying. Another one of the disciples. So these are men that had been following after him for a period of time. Says this, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Now, at first glance, um, it looks like this is a uh, reasonable Uh, request. In fact, Jesus in chapter number 15 of the book of Matthew would clearly reiterate the need to honor father and mother. But for whatever reason, he uh, responds this way. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave leave the dead to bury their own dead. So what's taking place here? Um, A few things I think that could be of significance. Number one, many believe that this man um, that he was, as he was asking permission to bury his father. Uh, most Bible scholars here, um, as they've looked at the culture and the way this is phrased, they believe that this is speaking of a father who has not yet passed. And oftentimes contained within these, uh, the implicit um, ideals of the day and the culture of the day, what would take place when an individual finally did pass 
was just like today, there would be a process of inheritance left. And so this one being a son of his father, um, it's likely that he was desiring to wait for that inheritance to take place. He was waiting for um, that time to come where he would be able to receive that inheritance. It's possible that if he leaves his father and leaves his mother, that he may even not have a stake in that inheritance if he were to come back. That he may not have a stake in that if he were to leave and to follow after Christ. We don't know all of the implications, but uh, we can understand that there was something that this man desired to be able to stick around for. And yet, what does Jesus say? Jesus uses a difficult statement here as he says, let the dead bury their dead. He says, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. You see, this man wanted to serve Jesus and he wanted to follow Jesus when it was convenient to him. He wanted to follow after Jesus when it worked for his schedule. Um, Doesn't this sound like our culture so much? When it's a good time for me, I would be happy to. Uh, When things are easier, I would love to. Uh, I would love to give when the economy is better. I would love to serve during a less busy season. I would love to participate except fill in the blank here. We live in a distracted age. In an age that complicates and adds so many things to our plate. We live in a time that everything is competing for our attention and pulling us every which way. And it makes it very difficult for us to discern which direction we ought to go in. But what we see is that here, there is an important thing that's presented to Jesus. Can we agree that the burying of the dead, it's an important thing, especially a loved one. And so this man, he's speaking these things. And yet Jesus' response can sound very harsh, very, uh, very abrupt as this man comes and says, let me go bury my father. Because then he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Who was who he talking about? Who are the dead that are going to bury? Because obviously someone who is physically dead is not going to bury someone else who is physically dead, right? So what he's speaking to here is he's saying, let those who are spiritually dead go out and do these things. Let those who have no interest in following after me go do those things. But for you, follow me. Someone else is going to take care of that inheritance. That money will go somewhere, I promise. Someone else will take care of all of the things that need to get done. All of the keeping around the house. All of those things that are good things and they are needy things. Someone's going to take care of those. But Jesus is speaking to this man. He says, you know what someone else isn't going to do? Follow me. We talked a few weeks ago about the salts of the earth, the light of the world. And Jesus speaks. He says that the salt has lost its saltness, its savor. Where is it going to be salted from again? What salt, salt? Well, nothing salts, salts. If the salt isn't going to do what it's designed to do, then it's not going to get accomplished. Nothing is going to replace that salt. And so similarly, nothing in this life, nothing in the world is going to fill in the role of a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are called to this. The church is God's plan A, and there's not a plan B. We are called to go and to be and to follow after the things that he has placed in front of us. But really, here's the core. Uh, here's what I believe is the crux of the point that Jesus is communicating here. 
And I want you to understand this clearly. A disciple's foundational duty is to follow Christ. A disciple's foundational duty is to follow Christ. Here's what I mean by that. All of us are building our lives on some sort of foundation. In fact, just a chapter before, Jesus gives a picture of the wise man and the foolish man. And if you're not familiar with this story, um, there's a little song that goes with it that Jacob would sing for you now. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. We didn't talk about this? All right. Um, but if we've heard the story, um, I heard, um, growing up in, uh, in church, I heard this song. Um, uh, but it goes, the wise man built, or the foolish man, I'm sorry, built his house upon the sand. Um, and what happens, um, all of you engineers in the room, um, what happens when rain hits sand or when water hits sand? It, it, it just goes, in the song, it, um, what, how's the song go? Uh, it goes splat or splash or whatever, right? It collapses is the point. All right. Um, you don't drive around Monroe and see um, sand castles built for various occasions, do you? <laughs> Um, not left, that the ones that are left for more than five minutes, right? Because they just don't last. They don't survive. And so this foolish man went out and he found a place and he said, this would be a beautiful place for a home, beachfront property. And he says, I'm going to build my house right here on the sand. And with no thought to the foundation, he began to build and he began to erect this monument for his life, this home. And he put all of the best things into it. Right? He used the best uh, materials. It had all the best finishes. It was first class. And then what happens? One day, a storm comes in and the rain begins to fall down. And all of those materials now are worthless. Why? Because the foundation was bad. The foundation was faulty. The foundation was swept away as the elements came. And then he compares that to another man, a wise man who built his house on a rock. He went and he found the best foundation he could find. And he said, this will be a place that will uh, withstand. It'll be sturdy and I can build my house here. And he began to build and he toiled and he worked. And then one day the storm came on his house as well, because the storm doesn't just bypass one or the other. The storm comes to all of us. And so the storm passed over his house as well. And then as the rains came, what happened to the house? It stood. Why? Because he was such a better craftsman than the foolish man. No, it was the foundation. It was the foundation. The contrast Jesus makes is not in the builder. It's not in the building materials. It's in the foundation. The, a disciple's foundational duty is to follow Christ. So here's what that means. We can lay a foundation of any sorts of material. Our foundation, the thing that can be most important to us, could be uh, family. How many of us, we say family is a good thing, we will affirm family. Family is a good thing. Okay. I also understand that I'm sitting in the room today with a number of people that have buried family members in the last several weeks. You see, family, we love family. We are called to cherish our family and to value our family. Family cannot be our foundation. Because God has given you that family for a season, for a life. But our foundation has to go beyond that. 
How many of us would agree that uh, finances, being wise stewards of the things that we have, that's a good thing, right? Having resources, having money, that's a good thing. We have to provide for our families and provide for ourselves, and we can use it to do good for others. There's nothing wrong by itself with money. It is a tool. But you understand that recessions have happened, and they'll happen again. Depressions have happened. They've happened again. Our health, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to diet and exercise. And today we look back over the last couple of years and all of us know lives have been affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Our health is not guaranteed to us. It's not promised to us. In fact, I can promise you this. One day your health will fail. All right, I'll bet money on it. Collect in 100 years. I think it's a pretty safe bet. Because one day all of us are going to be in that situation. All of these foundations, the thing that they have in common is there are storms in life that can come and that can erode them, that can tear them down, that can wash them away. And if your life is built on that foundation, then suddenly that foundation is gone. What happens to the structure that was built on it? There's nothing left. But as a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, we have a foundation that can't be shaken. When we build our lives foundationally on Jesus Christ, what storm can take that away from us? What storm can destroy that foundation? Hey, shingles might blow off of that roof, but that house is going to continue to stand. Damage may come and it may affect us. It may hurt and it will hurt, but that foundation will stand. A disciple's foundational duty is to follow after Christ. And so why do we, why do we care for our family members? Because God gave them to us. God put them into our lives. And we love them and we care for them in a godly way. Not as idols lifted up over Christ, but as gifts from a good God. Why do we steward our finances? Because everything that we have belongs to him. It's given to us for a season to use wisely in the way that he would have us to live. And so is Jesus telling this man, go be a bad son? Is Jesus telling this man, go uh, be irresponsible towards? Is he saying, no, what he's saying is, hey, listen, you're living your life for something that everyone else can live their life for. Follow me. Because if you follow me, what does Jesus say? Just a couple of chapters earlier. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. You can go look for all the other stuff, but you won't find it. Or you can go look for Christ, and he's going to make sure you have everything you need. He's going to take care of you. You want joy, happiness, satisfaction. You want those things. Those are found in Christ. Nowhere else. There's no foundation other than Jesus Christ that a disciple is called to build his life on. You see, everything, everything must flow from the source. A.T. Robertson said this, the spiritually dead are always on hand to bury the physically dead. If one's real duty is with Jesus. Chris Ostom says that while it's a good, good deed to bury the dead, it's a better one to preach Christ. You see, we spend a lot of time, if we're honest, and I don't mean this literally, I mean this metaphorically, but we spend a lot of time burying the dead, doing the things that everyone else in the world is looking at doing. In trying to do. 
If we're honest with ourselves, the way that our priorities oftentimes can line up is we spend time doing the same things that everyone else does. Can I ask you this? How does your life look different from someone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ? Does it look different on Sunday mornings? Well, here you are. All right. Excellent. How does it look on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the rest of the week? How does your life look different than those who would not say that they were followers of Jesus Christ? What are we spending our time on? Our plans and our resolutions. Now, understand, I'm not saying these things are wrong things, but when these things, when these good things become God things, they become idols. And we place them as the foundations of our lives. And then when they crumble, we look around and say, who could have seen this happening? But the fact is, is that, listen, difficult days will come. And the defining difference in how we endure those is where is our foundation laid? Where is our foundation laid? Because when our foundation is laid on Jesus Christ, there's nothing that can take that away. You see, I want you to understand with us this morning as we wind down. Jesus is better than anything the world can offer. Jesus is better than anything the world could offer. See, the world can offer up and say, look at these riches, look at these treasures, look at this uh, power, this authority, these things. But all of those things, they come and they go. Caesar, Nero, all these empires, they've fallen. These men have died. We go visit their legacy in museums. We talk about their names in textbooks, and they have no idea about it because why? They're gone. One uh, person said it this way. They said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, Jesus spoke, and he said this in the book of John. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. The night comes when no man can work. See, the life that we live here on this earth, in that time, we have the day. We can go and we can work. We can accomplish things. We can do things. But the night's going to come and no man can work then. There's going to be a time when our ability to impact the world for Christ is done. All of us will face that. And we don't know when it's going to come. We don't know when it's going to happen. And I don't say that to uh, startle you. I say that to encourage you. What are you doing with the life that God has given to you? Are you working the works of him that sent you while it's day? Are you a follower of Christ? Are you doing these things that he has called you to? What are we spending our time, our energy, our resources on? Physical, mental, are we worrying about all of the stuff that we have to get done? What are we doing for the cause of Jesus Christ? How will eternity be different as a result of the work that we have done and the things that we have done within our communities? within our neighborhoods, within our church, within our places that we gather together? How will other lives be impacted as a result? I want to take a second. I want to look at Philippians chapter number three. I just want to look at a couple of verses. Uh, Paul writes this in verse number seven. Coming into this verse, he's already given his resume, if you will. He said, look at all the things I've done. I was righteous. Uh, I was educated. He was in many ways probably like this scribe that we read about in the book of Matthew chapter number eight. He said, look at everything I had. Look at everything I'd done, everything I had accomplished. And then in verse number seven, he says this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. He said, when the time came for me to follow after Christ, you know what I did with all that stuff? I wrote it off. It was a loss. It was done with. And it's fine. Why? Verse number eight. He said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying everything that I had, everything that the world could give me, everything that was thrown my way, you know what it was next to Christ? Trash. I don't want to go dumpster diving for my future. I don't want to build my foundation on that. Next to Christ, it pales. And then what does he say? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Because understand this, you can't have a righteousness of your own from the law. You can't be good enough to lay a foundation. That's not how it works. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, you and I have been given the gift of eternal life. It's been offered to us freely through Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You can't build that as a foundation. You can't go out there and gather that together. That's a foundation that's already been laid for you. What you have to do is put your faith in it. We're not working for our salvation. We're, we're doing work as a result of it because we've been saved. We love him because he first loved us. And then what does he say in verse number 10? What is Paul's goal? Why does Paul do all of these things? Why does he endure beatings and persecutions? Why does he travel from city to city? Why does he preach the gospel even though he knows it'll result in confrontation and discomfort? Verse number 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, not his comforts, but in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, we live our life knowing that this life is not the end, but that we shall live again through faith in Christ. If you're in here today, there might be those in here who you say, I've never placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you today? That's the first step to building your life on this foundation. It's placing faith in him. There's no other foundation that will ever satisfy. There's no other salvation. There's no other foundation that will hold true through the storms of life. And then believers in here today, we've prayed the prayer. We've put our faith in Jesus Christ. We've trusted him for our future and for our faith and for the next life. Hey, can't we trust him for this life? If we can trust him for the life we can't see, can't we trust him for the life that we can see? What are you going to do with it? What are you building up your foundation on? Well, what is the reason for your existence? Why are you here? That I know him. That I may know him. That I may attain to the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that's worth living for. There's nothing else that's worth living for. See, we sang the song earlier today, and I think these words are so appropriate. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth, oh, they'll go strangely dim. The things that you thought you valued, the things that you thought were worth looking at, the things that you thought were something significant, strangely dim. All of a sudden, they don't hold that luster anymore. Why? Because I have compared them to the light of his glory 
and his grace. And it's going to outshine anything that you can place next to it. What's your foundation? Who are you following after? What are you following after? As we go into this new year, I don't know that I can think of a more appropriate question that I can ask. And so if you're sitting here today and you say, I don't know what I've done with Jesus Christ, or I've never placed my faith in Jesus Christ, hey, today would be a wonderful day to make that decision. I can show you from the word of God how you can place your faith in Jesus. You can know that you're a child of his, that you've been born again. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what are you building your foundation on this year? We've walked through seasons, uh, highs and lows, good things, bad things, things that we would do all over again and things that we wouldn't wish on our worst enemies. The difference is the foundation. It's the foundation. And so what are we building our life on? I encourage you, build it on Jesus. He's better. He's better than anything, anything that could be offered to you.